Welcome back to the Heart Gallery podcast for the second part of my conversation with Patrick Athara. I'm Rebecca Rivola de Kremer, the creator and host of this podcast. In this segment, Patrick and I continue to dissect inclusive storytelling and its critical role in understanding humanity, both that of the world as our own. I hope you will pardon the abrupt jump into the conversation. The New Humanitarian Podcast shared this first-person account. You have this series where you share first-person stories, essays, um, read out either with the person's actual voice who wrote that piece or, or someone else's voice, if, if that's compromising one's safety. And you had a piece written by an aid worker who had worked, I believe, both in Gaza and the West Bank. And it was one of the most powerful pieces of storytelling of prose that I've read around this whole thing. And there's a couple other podcasts that I've really enjoyed. They're also long form. I've been trying to follow as many artists. Um, Slima Mansour is one who's just been very active in sharing and he has incredible artworks that are visual storytelling at their finest, in my opinion. But these more these more visual and long form prose, I mean, it's not what people are flooded by. And I think that there is this sense that people need to be willing to look for the complex story. They need to be willing to not be seeing things as black or white. They need to be willing to be confused. And I think that we're conditioned, and maybe by like more sinister forces, we're conditioned to make snap judgments about people, which is, I think, like where this large-scale human dehumanization comes from. And I'm wondering what you think, like how can this more complex storytelling go head-to-head with this just flood of often dehumanizing short-form, 24-hour news cycle media that we're getting on social media? Well, I think that, I mean, you do make a good point. Yes, uh, um, uh, we are flooded by uh, narratives from that try to present the world in a very black and white way that uh, lack nuance, that lack history, that lack context. See it in Gaza with um, sort of the reluctance by many to accept that the events happening now might have roots in what has happened there in the last 75 years. So it's really, I think, important for us to be able to counter this. But more than that, um, uh, to go back to, to your question about uh, storytelling, and uh, it's, it's really the portrayal, I think, of realities and how we can do this. And this kind of, I think, highlights some of the uh, limits that traditional journalism, as we might understand, traditional Western journalism, runs up against. So if I give an example from some of the things we've been trying with at the New Humanitarian, some of which even predate my getting there. We had a project in Lebanon, you know, that looked at people's um, um, messages, you know, uh, uh, that they sent to one another during the uh, uh, the crisis there. And what do those tell us about what life is like? So it's like WhatsApp messages, you know. And those are valuable in terms of documenting what were people's um, uh, both uh, experiences, but also how are they feeling at the time? You know, what were they prioritizing uh, uh, and what are they prioritizing? You know, so it's rather than just having a journalist come in and write, in a, uh, and write about it, you know, here is what they themselves are saying. 
if you look at the uh, the the other project I wanted to highlight is the Yemen reporting project um, that we are doing, the Yemen listening project rather, uh, are the new humanitarian again, where we've invited people uh, uh, in Yemen and uh, people associated with Yemen um, uh, to send in their own stories about what what they think, what life is, what's their priorities, you know, and stuff, and you get this sort of wide lens view of the crisis there that it, people are not simply defined by the fact that there's a crisis you know people are living they're laughing they're loving they're going out on dates you know as these are not things that we normally think about when you talk about a crisis you know we just imagine everybody is a victim everybody's always you know ducking down you know uh, ducking bombs and the Yemenis themselves you know, and the messages that they were sending in were saying yes you know there is more to this than simply the fact that there is a, a, a political problem and there is a, a, a violence. Yes, it's there, but it doesn't just define them. And I think for me, that's a more important thing, is that if we're able to humanize people, we're able to see them in their fullsomeness, you know, in their humanness, then how we respond to them, how we respond to their killing would be very different. And, and and I think for, for and even how we think that we can help, you know, um, uh, suddenly we we start saying this as people who are like us, who are able to do things for themselves, you know, and maybe what we are doing is simply supplementing what already exists. We are not blind to it, you know, and 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 and, and I think the way we tell stories. Don't forget all these. I mean, sometimes people tend to think that policymakers and uh, stuff sort of have this own channel uh, that, that they have, their own uh, sources of information that they know much more than we do. But a lot of times they get their ideas and their, their, their views of a place from how it is reported, from how it is presented. And in any case, many of them respond to publics, to their constituents, uh, and what their constituents think of a place. So if they imagine Somalia is simply a failed state, you know, um, with nothing happening, then the push for the sorts of interventions that might actually have a chance of aiding the situation beyond simply uh, making sure people get fed from day one, uh, from day to day, you know, to actually addressing the causes of why they're there. You know, perhaps you don't get a push for that. You know, everything is limited to, oh, send them aid, you know, send them food, send them uh, blankets, you know, uh, and stuff. So if we have a fuller explanation, a fuller articulation of their realities, how we respond as human beings would change, you know, and our expectation of how the humanitarian system responds would change and we would put pressure on it to respond in the same way we would expect that response if these things were happening to us. Yeah. In the Somalia example, I appreciate, I heard you speak about that elsewhere. And you were talking about that you went to Somalia and before you went, you were expecting to be you know, dropped into a war zone and instead you saw people living their lives uh, and you were shocked. Right, exactly. I, I'd gone to Somalia uh, expecting, you know, having heard all these stories about, you know, war and, you know, what it looks like, you know, from TV, you know, it's a failed state. It is, you know, uh, full of extremists, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, fighting uh, the government uh, guys and stuff. This 
shooting on every street. And you get there, and uh, I was in this armored vehicle uh, being driven around, and I saw, you know, life, hawkers, open shops, you know, there were markets, the universities, you know, and it really was a shock to me. And, you know, Somalia is just across the border from where I am. You know, it's uh, it's a neighboring country. So this is not a Westerner speaking about some place far away, you know. This is just next door to me. So you, you can start seeing how these narratives that are built in our heads, these views that are built in our heads, impact how we start seeing people, how we dehumanize them, how we think that, well, I mean, Somalis, there must be something wrong with them, you know, and stuff. Rather than seeing them as people to whom certain things have happened, they are responding, they are doing the best they can um, in the situations they are. They might need some help, true. But even that help has to acknowledge their agency and their humanity, you know, and, and, and I think better right. reporting. Like how different that. are they really? Yeah, exactly. You know, how different are they really from from people like consuming news from from those spaces, from the comfort of their cozy homes, you know, in relatively safe places? And I, I want to share one one activity that I love to do. I have this obsession with going on Google Maps and going around the world to different places and doing street view and just seeing what is there. And I did this um, in the Gaza Strip a few days ago. And you can just, there's very li limited street view in the Gaza Strip. But there are a few places where you can go and you see children. You see, uh, there's this one um, street view that I found where you see children playing in the in the sea and they're, they have an inner tube and they're jumping in the waves. You see another person, a young man sitting on the shores on the beach, just looking out at a sunset. You see people interacting with animals, with dogs, with birds. You see gardens. There is this, you can go inside a greenhouse randomly in the Gaza Strip and you can see tomatoes that are like half green, but there are some that are ripening into orange. And you can see in that street view, you can see people's feet. You can see levitating heads because the way that the street view, you know, splices images. You can see people just living lives and it's very limited. You know, it's very little and you can do this anywhere in the world. And it's, it's this form of storytelling that's just so wonderfully crowdsourced and it's like a little bit indifferent because you don't know like you, you sort of go in there and you see what you find but I love that there are there are other um, more intentional projects out there that are doing effectively the same thing and my next question builds off of this and I don't know the answer to this at all but because I'm an optimist and because I feel like I belong to to many different contexts I would say even maybe every context like in my heart I'm wondering is this a zero sum game, like caring about different contexts, you know, like, or I think very often people get overwhelmed, you know, what's happening in Gaza is awful. While what's been happening in Gaza over the last week, we've seen a displacement of, of what is it, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Afghanis. There's crises happening elsewhere in the world. There's natural disasters, hurricane happening on this side of the world. And obviously people's attention is fixed on the Gaza Strip. And I'm wondering, can inclusive storytelling help us see that it's not that we have to like splice our attention into, you know, 10 or or a few dozen or a few hundred different contexts, but rather there is a way just to open up to all of it collectively? Um, I think it can. I think, um, uh, I mean, the one thing we've got to acknowledge is the world is a big place and the world is a complex place, you know. Um, and many times it's going to be hard to take it all in kind of in one bite, you know. Um so people have to become um, uh, comfortable with complexity. Um, and I think 
um, uh, inclusive storytelling can help with that, can help us uh, see the commonalities and understand, just as we know our own lives are complex, we're not just simple beings, we can start seeing complexity in these other spaces. And we start seeing complexity in the world, that yes, um, there are troubles happening all over, and we shouldn't be blind to them, you know. And just the fact that actually that we do focus on particular crises, isn't in itself a bad thing, you know. It's just that we shouldn't uh, think, we should be aware that there are other crises happening that also call out, you know, for our attention, you know. And that uh, perhaps we should be in the frame of mind um, that says, you know, who is it who decides which are the ones that uh, people will focus on right now because their sense Western media has put a spotlight on Gaza. You know, that's where uh, most people are. Perhaps if we have a much wider uh, range, or if we've built up a much more representative uh, press, then we'd have all of, uh, we'd have other people also able to voice uh, uh, what's going on in there. Um, if we had a fairer world, it really, should it really matter? It's just as that audiences large in the West are focused on this, you know, because it shouldn't be that it's only Western media that tells the stories. You know, local media is should be speaking, should have an equivalent voice, you know, um, in other spaces, you know, and and able to articulate those. So I think again, having a diversity of media, having media power that is much more disseminated and not as concentrated um, uh, 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 as it is today, you know, I think would be a would be great in, in in people being able to appreciate that you have many different uh, calls on your attention. I think social media, yes, it has uh, the, the 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 it does present opportunity to do some of this, but. I'm not one of the people who believes social media can replace uh, journalism. I think there are things, I mean, we can talk about what, you know, journalism does or should do, you see, but I still think that there is value in journalism in general and that we need to have journalists around the world, you know, who are able to articulate border stories, who are able to verify uh, news that comes out, who can give you uh, credible uh, uh, reports. You know, um, uh, but the concentration of media power, which we, I mean, clearly is is, is there now. You can see in the case of uh, being able to put a spotlight on one crisis to the exclusion of others. You know, that I think we need to do something about. We need to think about how that can be uh, uh, addressed and, and how we can have a, a wider distribution of this media power to spaces where normally they would really depend on uh, journalists from uh, uh, the West, you know, coming in and highlighting their plight rather than on local journalists being able to uh, 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 to speak to the wider world. I wonder if there was um, a greater demand for inclusive storytelling, for more diverse perspectives, for more complex perspectives, if that would open the door for other media sources, also other stories to to have more of the spotlight. And I wonder if you're seeing or if the new humanitarian is making an effort to get um, diverse stories, humanitarian-based stories into mainstream media to start to distribute. 
I mean, uh, uh, that is the ambition. That's what we're trying to do is to to get many local voices, many different types of stories. Um, so if you look at our, our reporting event this week, it's not really just Gaza. There's um, um, quite a lot of crisis that we are, uh, we are highlighting from what's happening in uh, Afghanistan with uh, uh, deporting of uh, Afghanistan refugees. You know, you know, we've got stories from Congo and things. So we, we're trying to cover a wide bit. You know, and, and humanitarian crisis is a pretty wide a bit. But yes, I do think that if people were able to see different types of stories, then they would decidedly demand, you know, the the world as presented to them by the news is that much more uh, reflective, much more complex. And I think a lot of times people are responding to how they've been used or conditioned to consume the news. So... Many journalists, uh, uh, I, I know even here in Kenya, tend to hide under the, the assertion that, oh, we are giving people what they want. But I think they've conditioned people to expect news to be presented in a certain way. Uh, so they've kind of created the demand, and then they say, well, it's actually the, the audience's fault. You know? Is there any way to go the other way in this moment where we're just increasingly just consuming sound bites? I, I think there is, and I think there is demand. Uh, let me get an example of uh, one of the projects I was involved in before I joined the New Mindset, and that was called The Elephant, or is called The Elephant. Um, now, The Elephant was, uh, we started it off uh, in Kenya as a way to counter this sort of very superficial narratives that were being propagated by the media, you know, so where the news was really presented as this competition between politicians, you know, as almost as a, a, a reality show, you know, where in every episode there'd be a protagonist and you know, uh, 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 somebody's going up against and we'd have this sort of gotcha headlines of, uh, you know, the Ruto said this, and what did Raila say next? You know, it is, and this is how they, they they presented the news. And we thought that you know, let's set up something that would do more in-depth reporting, more in-depth writing about the background, the context to the crisis, and the problems and the issues that we face. Um, that would bring in the history of it and show how the past became uh, father to uh, uh, to the present. I gave birth to the present. And initially, we thought, you know, well, it's, we were doing long-form writing, and we thought, well, not too many people would be reading this. We'd be lucky to get 5,000 guys, but hopefully some journalists will read it and it would uh, impact their writing. I mean, we ended up with like 50,000 people reading us we, and a, a demographic of like 25 to 45 year old which tells you that there is a real hunger, a real demand, a real opportunity for actually explaining uh, the news. And this is how I put it, I think, lots of media, um, uh, whether local media or even international media, are good at reporting, very bad at explaining. So they can tell you what happened, but why it happened and what led up to it, etc. they are not necessarily equipped to do that. And I think they need to change that. You know, the, it leads it leads sort of reporting the idea that it is about scoops, about um, being there first. You know, breaking news and all of that. That age is gone. You know, um, you can't compete with Twitter. You can't compete with uh, with social media 
in breaking the news. It's more important to explain, to be able to be verify what's happening, you know, to take your time to explain why it's happening and to tell better stories, you know. And I think that that is the future. That's in fact, that is the present, not even the future, you know. Um, and and I think our media needs to, our journalists need to recognize that, and go back. You know, I, I just a, a very quick thing about how um, one of the problems I see with um, the media models that we have. You know, before it used to be, the journalists sold the news or sold um, his craft to an audience build up an audience on his credibility, on his ability to explain and tell the truth well. And I think over a period of time, they took their audiences for granted and they became people who sell audiences to advertisers, not people who sell the news or who sell stories, you know. And I think they got into their heads that they could produce, you know, the, the, the quality of what they gave for as long as they had a captive audience. And that's what social media and the internet has freed the audience from. You no longer have to sit in front of CNN to find out what's happening. And I think part of the reason why they saw their audiences move so quickly was because they had degraded their product. And we need to go back to the basics and say it's about the products, about the content itself. You know, and how can we make our content more relevant, more useful, more appealing to audiences? And part of that is actually making it reflect the audience. And the audience is global. It is not local. It's no longer just a small uh, a, a fraction of humanity. It's everybody. So how do we make it more inclusive? And expecting more. Yeah, exactly. Like, like to go back to your previous exam, expecting more of the audience. Yeah. That- yeah, maybe they want like short, snappy, black and white sound bites, but they don't always have to want that. Like there could be another way. And I just, um, I know we're going over time here. I want to ask you a couple more questions if I may. And one is going back to the consumer, right? You've talked about the reporters and how to do better reporting and how to make space for that. But I'm wondering for people who are trying to understand what is happening around the world, how can they do that in a better, more ethical, more nuance more proactive, maybe a more engaged way, ideally in a way that goes beyond just receiving information. No, we can easily tune in right now and see children being pulled out of rubble 24 hours a day in Gaza. Also in other places in Afghanistan where where people were buried under the ground. So, But that doesn't feel very productive. Once, once you wrap your mind around the fact that that's happening, how to get out of that voyeuristic loop? Yeah, I, th- I think unless for journalists, it has to be more than simply what shocks, what surprises, you know. It's what what explains, you know, uh, uh, what allows us to make linkages, you know, between our experience and somebody else's experience, you know. Um, and I think how we approach it, a lot of it is humanizing not just the subjects of our reporting, it's humanizing our audience. It's understanding these are also complex beings, complex people, you know, people who deal with complexity in their everyday life. And this idea that in news they cannot, you know, oh, they have too short uh, uh, attention spans, you know, all they can do is deal with about 280 characters at a time. You know, this is not true. This is just an idea, perception we have on an, of an audience because we don't see them, you know, as fully human in the same way we are, you know. 
that people, they can ingest different ideas, different perspectives, you know, um, uh, without kind of being spoon-fed, this is then what it means. I, th I think for us as journalists, we have to be able to say, yes, we are explaining what's going on and we want people to live with an understanding that these are not simple, you know, black and white uh, issues. There's nothing black and white about the world, you know, that they, you can take a stand even in that complexity, even in understanding the complexity. And in fact, that complexity allows you to take a better stand, get a better understanding, you know. I think we need to get away from formats that were set up for an, a time when uh, resources were finite. So you had a newspaper, you only had so many column inches to explain it. That doesn't exist on the internet. We still have like these hourly news briefings where we say, oh, it's a soundbite for two seconds or for 10 seconds, you know, and then move on. It doesn't need to be that way. That's just how we have sort of learned to, to talk about the world, you know. We can unlearn that behavior, you know, and we can create a new way of reporting that is based on the fact that, well, we don't have to have hourly bulletins. You know, we can have conversation as we are having now that goes on for an hour that actually endeavors to understand, to bring in understanding rather than simply uh, highlight, you know, uh, a few viewpoints or uh, or simply highlight, uh, uh, you know, a soundbite because it sounds catchy, you know. And if you look at how reporting goes, even in Gaza and stuff, all about you know, grab them at once, you know, not take the time to explain, you know. And 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 until we are able to to do that slow journalism, not just this quick in out to explain things to give a background, to give the context of it in a fuller sense, you know, and trust that your audience will respond to that, that your audience will can make up their own minds, you know, uh, uh, but based on, the, on, on on a fuller presentation of, of, of the situation rather than simply expecting them to decide, you know, on the back of, you know, a few sound bites. You know, I think once we humanize them that way, then we'll end up telling better stories and we'll have an audience that better understands the world that they live in. Oh, that's so key. And I wonder, you, you gave your example about um, using your Twitter to rewrite headlines as if the United States and the UK and I think some other countries were being written about as if um, they were countries in, in certain parts of Africa or other regions of the world that are that were previously colonized or still colonized in various ways. And I'm wondering if you can share any other examples of story or art where we're going beyond an acute crisis and we're getting at these deeper systemic challenges that we're all faced with. I, th I think you can see, I mean, in, in lots of what's being put out, especially in the arts, you know, um, uh, I, I went to a performance uh, a, a few weeks ago on, um, this, it was kind of like the uh, a pop art, a pop art or pop magazine uh, sort of presentation of the news. And somebody was talking about uh, samosas and they used how their family has built up a samosa business as a way of explaining the experiences of the Asian community in Kenya through East Africa. It was 
fascinating. It was really captivating. You know, it's the story of this one family and how, you know, all the tribulations they've gone through from losing everything, you know, to rebuilding a business, losing it again, having to move from one country to another, etc. But always they were making this sort of samosas and building a business through that, you know. So it, it, it was really for me, uh, and, and they're talking about East Africa. This is my backyard, you know. And these are stories I had never engaged with, you know. So it's, it's, I think it shows you the power of alternative techniques of more indigenous storytelling practices, you know. And I think that it's not, we shouldn't think of this as replacing what, we, uh, or my say, is, 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 is Western journalism. It's adding to it, you know. That yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's. I think what you need are more perspectives, not less. It's more ways of telling stories, not less. You know. So it's not that this is wrong and take it instead of this. It's how do you add on to what you already have so that you have more perspectives. Um, I love uh, uh, Chimamanda Adichie's uh, talk. Which her famous talk on the danger of a single story, you know. And that's what she says, is the problem isn't that the single story is necessarily false, you know, or untrue. It as it is incomplete, you know. It is just one perspective on a, you know, pretty complex world, you know. So the more perspectives we have, the better. The more stories we have, the more different types of telling stories we have, then uh, that just improves our uh, our understanding and our appreciation of the world. As I said, it is really goes down to trusting audiences and to saying that audiences are not these simple people who we need to spoon feed, you know, just a few perspectives or just a few sound bites. It's trusting that they can see when the world is presented in its complexity, they can make sense of it. We can help them make sense of it. We don't have to dumb it down, you know, for them. So much, and now I want samosas, and it's still the morning here. That's a beautiful example. Um, I'm wondering, Patrick, you're a cartoonist, and I'm wondering what your current art practice looks like. Are you cartooning? Are you engaging in other art forms? And what is the aim of your art currently? <laughs> well, I am a cartoonist. Um, I haven't been doing much uh, apart from really illustrating uh, some of the columns I write, both on Al Jazeera and uh, for the New Humanitarian. But one of the things that I did uh, for for a long time was I, I was running the Association of East African Cartoonists. So um, I would organize like this uh, exhibitions of cartoons, you know, about an issue. It's amazing the use and the the power that they can bring to a discussion and just how they, you know, they are able to condense a really like, complex idea into a few images you know you know that old saying that a picture is worth a thousand words I think a cartoon is probably worth many more so it's 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 really being able to articulate those perspectives and um, not being afraid to to take a stand uh, about things and I think that's the other thing by the way that I should really mention about uh, decolonized reporting and inclusive storytelling you know just because you are the journalist who explained doesn't mean you can't take a stand. In fact, uh, if you look at sort of the 
um, uh, the origin of the whole uh, objectivity uh, discourse, you know, in uh, uh, in ethics. If you look at the AP guidelines, um, uh, 30s and stuff, you know, they focused on objectivity in the sense of the process by which the news is made, by which the news is produced, not the journalist. The journalist is a human being. He's got his ideas, but it's, I'd say, how can we get this person who has his biases, who has his cultural blind spots, you know, to produce a piece of work that still acknowledges them, but is very reflective of other viewpoints, you know, of the things that he might miss, you know. Objectivity is in the process, not in the person. And, and I think that we've kind of missed that. And uh, uh, journalists many times were taught, oh, you, you've got to sort of not have a view. You know, if a genocide is happening, you can't really come out and say it's a bad thing that's happening. No, all you have to say, you know, is, is, is to use very neutral language. I think we're getting away from that. I think um, uh, it's really important for us to acknowledge what are things that are acceptable, what aren't. You know, and for journalists to be able to speak, to voice their uh, uh, their thoughts around this um, uh, uh, in their reporting. You know, cartoonists have been doing this for a long time. And it's not just cartoonists, satirists in general. I mean, uh, look at people like John Stewart, Trevor Noah in the U.S. You know, and how people come to follow their, their, them, even as sort of the sources for news, which is very terrible. Uh, but in the end, they they are not looking for these sort of anodyne reports that, you know, what we had reduced uh, our media to being. I think lots of the best reporting you will see takes a stand. It it's able to be fair, but also it is not afraid to say when things are, are right or, or, or when things are wrong. You know. And I think that's where journalism needs to go back to, to be a force for for good and not just sort of trying to present itself as um, this uh, blank sheet on which anybody can write uh, a perspective, you know. So, yeah, I think cartoonists, satirists have had it right all along. <laughs> uh, uh, I think we will always take what they say, understanding it is their perspectives, you know. But because of how they utilize humor and stuff, they're able to attract audiences. They're able to get audiences to engage with thoughts that they might initially sort of have dismissed or been afraid to engage with. And that, again, is part of inclusive storytelling, is finding ways to open up the space so that many more guys can engage um, uh, in conversations that perhaps they might have thought as um, alienating, you know, Humor can do this, but I think other art forms can do it as well. Nothing is better than cartooning at spotlighting hypocrisies and, and breaking them down. Uh, I, I love the role of cartooning in that space. And uh, I wonder if you could share either three cartoonists or storytellers or other types of artists that are your favorites. Um, could be artworks as well, and maybe ideally that are addressing global issues in some way. Ah, well, cartoonists, I would start with uh, my local uh, uh, hero, so um, Gado or Godfrey Mompembwa, who is one of the best-known uh, cartoonists in Africa. I think he does some really incisive uh, cartoons. Um, Paul Kalemba Mad uh, as well, you know, 
I think if you look at people like Sharjah Patel, Sharjah Patel is 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 a poet, and and I love uh, her work. She she she's done a a book called uh, Migritude that I, I think everybody should read. You know, a uh, 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 collection of her works. You know, so um, yeah, I mean, there's a large number I think of poets and uh, writers any people can pursue. But I also think that just as we're looking for diverse viewpoints, it's really important to look at less well-known artists and cartoonists, you know, um, uh, less well-known writers. You know, They bring a perspective to these discourses. And what we don't want to do is to have it that it's all kind of reflecting the, the the kind of media space where it's all hogged by sort of a few big names and uh, authorities, you know. It should be much more distributed. That is the world that the internet offers. That's the possibility that it offers, you know, that we can, you know, we can encourage people all across. I mean, I started off as a blogger. I never thought anybody would read uh, uh, the stuff I wrote, you know, look where I ended up. So, um, and I think that the more we can just have people able to articulate and write their stories and uh, um, have forums where we can engage with them, you know, uh, uh, the better. You know, um, uh, and obviously people who are good at what they do will always uh, rise to the top, you know. But I think we can still have spaces for a, a lot more views, a lot more people participating um, uh, in the public square. And actually, in the end, that's what it is. It's, it's the new space is supposed to be sort of a global public square. That was the promise of the internet, you know, and that's what we need to actually make it, you know, um, uh, and, and work hard to actually ensure that it's a space where many more voices can be reflected, many more people can come in and, uh, and speak and articulate their realities and have us, you know, sort of pay attention you know, to it and have it inform what we come up with as an idea of, you know, uh, the world and situations, different situations around the world. I was going to ask you one more question, but as you were speaking, it just occurred to me that I didn't ask you a question that maybe I should have asked you first. And this is a podcast about art and the issues of our time. And in my mind, you know, journalism is an art form, but do you think it is an art form and how? I do think it is. I don't think many journalists um, uh, think of it as an art form. You know, um, I think there has been a real push to sort of take out more creative aspects from it um, under the guise of uh, professionalizing it. You know, and I, and I think we are kind of getting, coming back to it. I, I think that it is a form that can take what's happening and explain it in ways that they it becomes engaging and articulate. Yeah, I mean, uh, engaging and informative and useful. You know, I think especially in the uh, in the news arena, um, uh, once journalism is freed from breaking news, you know, it's able to go back to its core of explaining what the news is, you know, and articulating realities in ways that are compelling, you know. Um, so yes, for me, for sure, journalism is always has been uh, a news form. I think 
people have tried to change that. But uh, I'm glad that now we're starting to see moves towards reinstituting uh, the arts back into how stories are told, how the news uh, uh, is told. Yeah. Thank goodness. What if he said no? (laughs) (laughs) Just joking. I would air it otherwise. Um, As a last question, Patrick, can you share a piece of homework for the audience? Something to do, something to consider, something to make? I think the one thing I would ask audiences to do is to to read up and to read up especially on history you know you find very interesting things when you look even at the most ordinary or things or the the assumptions that you make um about let me tell you one that uh happened much to me uh obviously i'm uh i'm born in kenya brought up in this society where i was taught that there are things called tribes um, uh, that we are all divided into these 42 communities and have been there for eons, you know, the age-old um, identities that we've had. And it doesn't take much to actually debunk it, you know. Uh, it really just takes a curious mind to ask, all right, where did that come from? You know, uh, and you read a bit and you find there's lots, loads of research uh, that's been done into this evolution of of identity, you know, and you start learning that oh, actually, uh, some tribes that didn't exist before the 1940s, you know, uh, somebody just came up with other guys were being switched from one to the other, you know, uh, by executive fiat. How lots of what we think of as ethnic communities, if you were to go. Um, uh, just a hundred years uh, ago, you know, the people who had that brand, who had that name, who had that identity, might not even recognize them. You know, that how identity worked, we've been taught uh, in Kenya today that the uh, of um, tribe as this sort of totalizing identity. It's, it, it, it captures everything, you know, from your politics to how you live to how you dress, it is. If I for a lot of these guys, it didn't really matter much. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it was understood as a very fluid uh, thing, you know, had pretty much nothing to do with who your dad or mom was, you know, uh, things in the way that today we are being told is kind of encoded in your genes. So understanding how the world has been made, how you have been taught to see it, you know, um, uh, through history, through your appreciation of, you know, or your thinking about how the uh, uh, how it came into being, you know, can be a really liberating uh, experience. And I would urge your listeners to engage in it, to think of something that they think is really important to them, that really defines them, and to ask, why do I think that? Where, where does that come from? And go into it and research it. And I think you will find many times that there is much more we have in common than the things that we think define us. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, that would be my homework. Powerful homework, Patrick, and wonderful notes to end on. Finally, what are your dog's names? Because they were present a little bit throughout the interview. So just so we know who you're speaking uh, okay. with here today. So there's Benji and Luna somewhere around here making... Benji a, and Luna. Yeah. Making a, a, a it's such episode. a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Such a pleasure, really Patrick. It. Thank you. And Benji and Luna, thank you so much. <laughs>
Thank you to Patrick for underscoring the profound impact that inclusive storytelling might have not only for our ability to empathize with the not-so-other-other, but also the powerful impact story-sharing has for the storytellers. Expanding media to make space for perspectives, histories, and ideas from story traditions that are outside of Western norms is something that is so exciting to me. I'll be sure to collect all of the examples that Patrick shared in the show notes, the WhatsApp message story from Lebanon, the Yemeni message story, the poetry examples, the cartoonists, and all the rest. Thank you for listening, and I hope this conversation inspires you to seek out and share the multitude of stories that surround us just below the surface. Thank you to Samuel Cunningham for editing this episode and to Cosmo Sheldrake for the episode music. The podcast art is created by me, Rebecca Rivola the Kremer. Find links for connecting in the show description, along with ways to find Patrick and the New Humanitarians reporting. Until next episode, episode two of season two, take care. <laughs> <laughs>